Hey, Robert. What's up, Meryl? <laughs> We're back again. Installment back again. number two. Yes, installment number two. I'm excited. It's been uh, the first conversation was so good. I'm excited about uh, just kind of transitioning a little bit further into what folks are doing to address some of the things we talked about in the first installment around cultural competency and poverty and what what the boots on the ground approach to that type of stuff actually can look like. That's exactly right. And to get some of that response, we are pulling in Dr. Sharon Hickson. She is the Dean of the School of Education at Dalton State um, up in Whitfield County. Um, their community in general, I mean, Dalton does such good work in the education space all along the pipeline. So it is no surprise that they are doing excellent things um, in prepping future teachers uh, for their community and all of the surrounding region. Uh, they really have some neat responses to how do we develop some of that cultural competency mm -hmm. um, that are that we know our teachers need. Absolutely. Well, I'm ready to hear everything she's she she shared, and so let's jump into it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Sharon, would you please introduce yourself to our listening audience? Yes, thank you. I'm Sharon Hickson. I'm the Dean of the School of Education at Dalton State College. Wonderful. And we are so excited to have you here, um, not just because you're wonderful, but to have the voice of the Dean of the School of Education, because as you know, um, we're talking through the teacher pipeline. Um, and some of the challenges that we're seeing, especially in smaller communities and non-metro communities across the state, can you tell me what are you seeing? What's give us a snapshot? How are we doing? And I know coming out of COVID, a lot of things have changed and a lot of things are sort of in flux, but as much as we can say, where are we? Where are we? Um, sure. So um, with regard to the teacher pipeline, we are seeing um, a slight decrease in enrollment in the School of Ed um, over the last few years. And that was happening prior to um, the pandemic. Um, the, that is an issue across the state. And um, I attend various meetings across the states with other um, state leaders and teacher pipeline discussions are a constant um, focus of our discussions. So we're involved in lots of planning and proposals to try to boost the teacher pipeline. With regard to the teacher recruitment in the public schools, in our local area, it may not be as great in some of the content areas as it is in other parts of the state, but right here locally, we are having trouble um, sometimes filling the positions in um, STEM fields like math and physics, special education, and also foreign language. And um, teachers are hard to find for some of the local schools. That echoes that echoes some of the struggles that we hear about. I mean, you're right. This is a statewide issue. It is not unique. Um, it's a big it's a big one. It's a big one. Um, and that that absolutely those shortages in particular, I think that those tend to be hard to find positions and and especially in smaller communities. Um, now you guys have some pretty interesting stuff going on in the retention space, which is another big challenge, of course, um, as well as recruitment. But talk to us about that. What are you guys doing to address 
retention challenges because new teacher turnover is is big. It's it's bigger than we need it to be. So um, one of the um, big focus points for our um, teacher prep programs is trying to help our teacher candidates understand the context of the lives that the children are living um, so that they have an idea of where the children are coming from, what type of struggles they might have at home, what kind of support they have at home. And so a lot of the work that we do is focused on giving them additional experiences outside of the typical field experiences they have um, that are required of them. So most of our teacher candidates in our elementary program will earn a minimum of 1,000 hours in the field. And that means they are placed in schools from their junior year through their senior year and they're acquiring field hours and teaching and having observations and being scored and evaluated and coached through the program. Fairly typical things that most teach, most and all, probably all teacher prep programs are doing in different ways. What we tend to focus on is the Beyond the Classroom is actually the name of one of the grants we wrote with um, Whitfield County Schools, mm -hmm. and that was funded through the Governor's Office of Student Achievement. And the focus there was getting our teacher candidates to work with parents and children beyond the classroom and giving children and parents in the community support beyond the classroom. So we have programs such as power lunches where our teacher candidates develop science and literacy lessons and they work in pairs and they literally go out into four communities. They spread a blanket on the ground. They pitch a tent above the blanket because we need them protected from this hot sun in June and July. And once a week on Fridays, they're at these sites in the communities and they're delivering lessons to whoever shows up to get their lunch at the feeding site and um, wants to stay for a lesson. So the grant provided the materials for us. The grant provided the funds to um, pay the, the teacher candidates a stipend for the creation and delivery of the lessons. We felt those stipends were really important for our teacher candidates because most of our teacher candidates are working one, possibly two jobs. Some of them are working full-time while going to college full-time. And we didn't want them to miss this wonderful opportunity because they needed to work their regular job at a local fast food restaurant or something to pay for their college tuition or gas back and forth to college or food or any of the regular expenses they might have. So the, when the teacher candidates are out there in those communities doing that work, they get to meet children of all ages. We have literally had cats and dogs run through the middle of a lesson. <laughs> and we we feel like if they can, if they can have classroom management, so to speak, in the middle of a <laughs> lesson with a cat or a dog totally disrupting the lesson, classroom management in a classroom should be should be that much um, easier to handle. 
but it really lets them see the children in their home environments and interact with their parents in a space that's comfortable. I would think that aspect, that connection with the families has got to be huge, not only in terms of building the insight of the teacher candidates about what life is like for students, but also in terms of building stronger relationships with parents in general, which I know parent engagement is a a regular concern of schools in general. How do we build it, especially with parents that it is harder to get them to um, participate because they're at work or they are at home with other kids or whatever it is. Um, But building those strong relationships, I would think would be such a important piece of this as well. So with um, parent engagement, when we began this work, we um, had data from the Casey Foundation and that data looked at um, different factors that put students more at risk. Mm. And it I, we liken it to overlaying data to show where like a storm is going to be um, coming so that you, you're given notice ahead of time. And when we overlaid that data um, as a community, we could, we could um, drill down to almost the street level and see where the students were. And then we could connect that street to a particular school. And then we looked at school data and that's how we focused where we were going to work. And before we began our work, we didn't decide what we needed to do. We had ideas, but we brought together a parent focus group and we asked them what they thought they needed for us to help them to be successful. How cool is that? What did they say? So uh, they wanted to be able to help their children and they weren't quite sure how to help their children. Mm -hmm. And Many of our parents are non-native speakers of English, and they they thought that they couldn't help their children or or they were afraid to help their children because they were afraid that if they helped them in their native language, which most often is Spanish in our area, mm-hmm. that they would somehow mess up their children's sure. progress. And so we've spent a lot of time focusing with our parent, the parents that we're working with in conjunction with our school systems by saying, you practice this work in whatever language is comfortable to you, because the more literate your child is in the first language, the, the easier it's going to be for your child to be literate in the second language. Yep. So it's really... Yep. The parent engagement piece is about empowering the parents. And we do a lot in learning academies, which is where we have our faculty um, that are in the literacy area. They go out and deliver like six to eight week workshops with the parents and our teacher candidates come along to assist. Again, the grant work pays for the grant funds from the governor's office of student achievement have paid for all of this work. And they show parents what to do, but they also, and they give parents time to practice what they've shown them. And then we provide, um, we provide all of the materials to the parents that they might need to do the work. If it's books, if it's crayons, if it's pencils, if it's paints, I mean, 
we've done an activity with shaving cream where they write with shaving cream to practice their letters and words and things on a on a table. We don't assume that those parents have any of those materials at their houses. Um, it's because we want every parent to be able to practice. So parents have been very appreciative of the materials, but when we've done focus groups with the parents, the parents have told us while we loved getting the free materials and the books to take home, what we really liked was that you showed us what to do with them. Mm, that's wonderful. That's powerful. That's a wonderful thing. And it's wonderful that the teacher candidates are part of this to, again, help them have that insight and understanding about what commu what the community looks like. Your Now, your program, Dalton State, pulls from, obviously, the, the nation and the world. Um, but do you find that most of your, do you know, I guess, um, if most of your applicants come from the region and if they return to the region? Yes, most of our applicants um, come from a small number of counties and mm -hmm. most of our applicants are going to want to return to those counties. Now we do recruitment in other places in Georgia and most of our candidates are coming from, the majority are coming from Georgia counties. Sure, sure. And, they're, and that's where they want to return. And one of the hallmarks of our program is, is that we try as best as we can to place the, the candidates in their last two semesters of their program in the counties in which they want to get jobs. Ah, so that not only gives you an insight as to where they're going, but it gets their feet wet, gives them the experience and the relationships to get them going afterwards. Yes. And now we can't, if they live in South Georgia, for example, it's very, sure. very difficult to place them there, but it's not to say that it's impossible. We'll, we do have a, we have placed some students in say Cherokee County, or mm -hmm. we've, we've placed a student in Savannah one time. So we are expanding to try to meet what our, our candidates desire. That's magnificent. That is magnificent. And so they are really going back into and feeding. This is such a good system for feeding homegrown teachers. I mean, that's one of the things we hear all the time is that it is, unless you have friends or family or were raised in a particular small community, there's not a lot of incentive to go there. You don't know anybody. Um, you, you weren't, you, you don't know the gems that are, you know, in the community that are, you don't have that, that personal connection, but that grow your own sort of insight and not insight, that's the right word, but um, that movement to really take the people that are here and bring them back here to, to take care of this community is so important. And, and cult culturally, many of our students come from a background where they see their families quite a bit and they want to be able to maintain those relationships so they can't really imagine going somewhere else very far away to, to teach. We have had students teach in other countries and other states, but the majority are going to be teaching in, in Georgia and the majority of those teaching in Georgia are gonna be teaching in a, in a limited number of counties, probably 10, 10 counties or fewer where is where most of our candidates are going. That is wonderful. We are so happy to have you as a resource in this state. Um, 
Now, has have you seen COVID affect any of this? What is the what are the impacts that you not only and I know we're we're not over COVID, so I don't mean to be like you know now that it's all wrapped up with a bow on it. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, sure, yes, have you seen impacts so far? But what do you guys forecast when you look forward? What are you seeing on the horizon? So COVID did affect us, but I do have to say that um, we feel extremely fortunate that our partner schools um, saw that allowing our teacher candidates to be placed in their schools during the pandemic was essential to their development and growth um, so that they would have a better chance to be retained once they were graduated and became a teachers because they will they will have had all of those same experiences that we had pre-pandemic. So when I started requesting placement and um, contacting our partner school systems, not one partner school system turned us down for Wonderful. field placements during the pandemic. Wonderful. We of course had to change what those placements looked like. Sure. We had to be flexible and adhere to all the social distancing policies uh, and safety protocols that we had in place as well as the school system had in place. We had to iron out all of those um, logistics, but in general, field placements went on as before. So some field placements, um, some of the students are involved more in the virtual learning mm -hmm. if um, they're doing they're in a school system where there's more virtual learning but many of the students are doing their same um, field type of field experiences where they're teaching in front of the classroom and from an internal point um, we have moved to online observations where we had not done that in the past. So our teachers record themselves and post those recordings. And then we have a special platform that we use for that. And our site supervisors, the people who would normally go out into the schools to supervise are, are watching those videos and they are providing feedback right in, in the platform for the teacher candidate. So the, the interesting thing about that is that they can actually stop the video and write feedback right there while they are um, seeing something. So at three minutes and 22 seconds, you did a great job of connecting to the students' lives. So the teacher candidates can see exactly what they did that, was, that worked, and they can also see the critical feedback right in in the timing of where it happened in the video. We envision that that will become a part of our program going forward. Um, when we, when the schools completely shut down in, um, well not shut down, but when they had to go to remote learning in, in the previous spring, then we started looking for, okay, what happens if we can't go back into the school in fall of 20? What could we do instead? And we um, worked with the University of West Georgia. They have a virtual simulation lab where huh. teacher candidates can teach um, to virtual students. And we incorporated some of that virtual teaching into our, um, into our early field experiences and our teacher candidates have had great um, success with that. We have a 
faculty member who coaches them as they're doing it, and they can actually pause the simulation if they don't know what to do next or they they have um, the look on in their face of like, oh no. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> they can coach, they can pause it and the coach in the room can s help them work through okay, what would you, what could you do? Well, what do you think will happen? And work through that. So we have already planned to keep that in our program. So we have really looked at the pandemic as an opportunity. What are we learning from this experience? And how can we use what we are learning, what's worked to support what we do in the future? We've taken, we've, um, taken a good hard look at the technology training piece that we mm -hmm. provide for our teacher candidates and have added many components that yep. directly address the need for virtual learning because we're we're just looking at the that there could be a new normal the right. normal may not be the 2019 normal we may have a new normal and we have to be ready well, that answers sort of the last question I had in my head, which is how much is virtual tr training for virtual teaching become a part of what you guys do? But it sounds like you have already worked that into the curriculum with the understanding that while we don't know exactly what tomorrow is going to look like, we are sure it's not going to look exactly like yesterday. And I do think we still have a ways to go. You know, we're still we we recognize that there are many more things we can be helping our teachers teacher candidates with as with regard to virtual teaching. Um, but when we went totally remote in spring, in the spring of 2020, that's when we started to take a look at what we were currently doing and how do we get that the candidates to the level that they need to, to be at. And I know that I heard from one of our graduates who had participated in both learning academies and power lunches and when in spring of 2020, and she talked about how the experiences in those programs really prepared her more for virtual learning because she had a clear understanding of the fact that she couldn't assume that students would have access to certain materials in their houses. Mm. And how did she account for that? Work around that or make sure they had the materials that she needed wow. before she before she developed some of those virtual lessons that she was doing. I so mean, powerful endorsement of the program. That's cool. That's really neat. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> so in terms of, so while our focus is on retention, we are do we are making um, some strides in our recruitment efforts also. Mm -hmm. So one of the um, ways that we try to keep the recruitment pipeline of people coming into teacher prep is to have good solid relationships with our local school systems and their teacher teaching as a career pathways. Mm -hmm. So um, I have either visited some of those pathway classes and um, provided demonstration lessons or talked about getting into teacher prep in general, getting into teacher prep program at Dalton State College. I serve on their uh, several advisory boards. Um, Dalton Public Schools has um, an early childhood program where they have a lab, like a preschool lab school in Dal at Dalton High. And those 
teacher, uh, future teachers or future graduates, they um, do an exit interview and I participate in the exit interviews for them. So I have a good idea of what's happening in those programs and um, have a good idea of the types of questions and things to ask them to, so that they can show that they're, they're workforce ready mm. when they graduate from that, from that program. So that's one thing we're doing for recruitment um, of teacher candidates and trying to address the pipeline issues with special education. Um, we don't currently have a special education program, but we've added an autism spectrum disorder um, endorsement, which is an additional three credits, I mean, three classes, nine credits that our teacher candidates can mm. take, which would give them another um, area of expertise that can help in that special ed realm. And then um, we have also um, looked at different ways to um, convince additional students that are in our STEM programs. We have fairly, we have very robust STEM programs. And, try, and so we have looked for funding that would be able to be used to encourage those students to consider teaching instead of just a straight STEM degree. Sure, sure. Um, that's wonderful. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's so important because those are, like I said, those are, those are shortages across the state. Um, everyone, it's not unique to um, Northwest Georgia. It's not unique to, to Whitfield County. Um, that it's, it's, if it was an easy nut to crack, we would have cracked it by now. Um, so it's wonderful to see you guys trying innovative things to address that issue. One of the other um, things that we recognized as a result of the pandemic is that we have some policies in place that we thought were reasonable policies. For example, um, we will we have not allowed teacher candidates that are placed in a particular school system, say Whitfield County, Dalton Public School, Gordon, wherever. We have not allowed them to substitute teach in the schools in which they are going to be placed. We've seen that as a conflict of interest. We don't want them to have two different relationships established at a school. Um, we were very protective of them and just feel like that 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 was um, maybe not a good idea. But because of the pandemic and the fact that many substitutes that school systems have are retired school teachers, sure. and before all of those individuals could get um, vaccinated, our local school systems were having trouble finding enough subs. Right. So um, Whitfield County contacted us and said, is there any way you would reconsider and allow your teacher candidates that are placed in our schools to substitute on the days they're not in class or in their placement, substitute for us. And so we, we are always trying to make our partnerships reciprocal. We mm -hmm. don't want to just take from sure, sure. our school systems. We want to give back. So we said, yes, we can, we can look at that policy and we can relax it. And it's been very successful. Teacher candidates are being able to sub, they're getting additional experiences, they're getting known in additional schools. And we've had absolutely no um, negative results. Wonderful. So 
we'll use that knowledge going forward to say, okay, it, it worked. Should we reconsider these policies? Sure. Of okay. course, within the within the context of any state policies that we, we are mandated to follow. Sure, sure. Oh, that's wonderful though. That's such a great example of how there are opportunities in this and there are things that we can learn from having to quickly and nimbly adapt over the last year. Um, and that can help us do what we do better. So that's wonderful to hear. Well, Dr. Hickson, thank you so much for taking the time. I don't, I, I don't have any other questions. This is, it sounds like, um, I mean, of course, Dalton is always holding a flag up for the rest of <laughs> the state, especially in terms thank, of thank you. the whole pipeline from early learning and early childhood all the way up through Dalton um, State College. You guys are do you do great work. Um, so we're excited to hear about it today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. And I appreciate you very much. You have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Thank you. Meryl, as usual, great conversation. Um, you're so savvy in how you, you, you pull in our guest into the world that we're trying to make sense of. Um, and so, you know, listening, one of my takeaways was that um, teacher retention and recruitment, of course, are like a one-two punch uh, with recruitment being on the front end of that process. And a big part of being successful in doing that work, as we learned in installment one, is ensuring that teachers understand the culture and the context of their students. And one of the, the, the things that Dr. Hickson noted is that they're heavy on field training. So she mentioned that they provide over a thousand hours of field training for their, their student teachers. It includes coaching and evaluation. But the second thing that I really loved was this notion of this beyond the classroom program yeah. It gives those same teachers an opportunity to spend time with their students and their families outside of the school building. On their home turf. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you're you're still providing educational opportunities, but you're doing it in a more neutral space and you're doing it in a way that's going to help teachers develop a deeper understanding of what it is their students lives are like. Uh, that's that's just brilliant. And I was so impressed by the initiative. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, and I loved also how well it reflected what Dr. Cooper was saying in our last um, installment, you know, about how if, if teachers don't, you know, during this whole, all of a sudden everybody was virtually teaching. And so teachers had an insight into the homes and houses of their students and got some understanding that they might not have had otherwise. Um, and here you have Dalton State ensuring that they have that context before they even get into the classroom for real, for real. Um, right. And how invaluable that is, that insight, that understanding, that ability to navigate, uh, building those relationships that you need to be a good teacher, um, to have good parent engagement, to keep your kids involved, to know how to interpret the challenges that you do see in the classroom sometimes. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, this year as an organization, we, we focused on, on parent engagement. And I loved how she described working with families who, who may not speak English natively. And, and she talked about empowering them to use their own native tongue 
to support their children. Right, right. Because the bilingual experience is enriching in a way that perhaps the parents haven't considered and the teachers perhaps may not be leveraging to their advantage. So give the materials, give the training and encourage the parents to use the resources they have and that they're more comfortable with, whether it be language or culture, to really ensure their students are ready to succeed. I mean, it just sounds like a very innovative way of saying, okay, we're gonna meet you where you are. We're gonna give you the, the tools and support you with the training and and trust that in partnership with you, mm. your children are mm. gonna succeed. That is again just so encouraging. I, I think it, it it takes thinking outside of the box sometimes to get the results that we're not getting in the more traditional ways of approaching educating our students. So I I applaud that they're doing it all state. They do good work, man. They do good work. Yes, they do. Well, that's another installment down, uh, the Teacher Pipeline series. We are so looking forward to our third installment. Yeah, just wait. We got another good one to go. Other possible in interventions um, to get more of the right folks into the classroom and help them stay there. Yes. So we will catch you all next time. Bye, Robert. <laughs> See you, Meryl. Hey there, listener. One more thing before you go. You've been hearing from us, but we'd love to hear from you. We at the Georgia Partnership always want to get better at what we're doing. So let us know what you think so far. Also, what are we missing out there across this great state? Who's doing cool things in your neighborhood to support the education and workforce pipeline? What innovations and solutions has your community come up with around economic development? Are there some great partnerships between sectors like housing, health, transportation, that are making a difference in your educational outcomes? We'd love to hear about them and spread the word about good work being done across Georgia. We hope to hear from you. To contact us, go to our website, gpee.org, and click on the Contact Us tab in the top right corner. Or give Robert, our communications guru, a call at 404-223-2464. Thanks for listening, listener.